Hello and welcome to Farmerama. It's good to be back this month with a collection of conversations with farmers who are trying to build a more ecological future. This has been quite a year. Many of us are not enjoying the holiday season the way we'd expected. But the darkness can also be a time for reflection, for planning, and a time to take comfort in the natural cycles that guide our planet, as well as ourselves. We've now passed the winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere, and the days are once again getting longer. This month, we bring you three stories of positive change, offering grounds for hope. We begin by learning how raising sheep and goats ecologically results in wool that's extra special, all because of the good work going on in the soil. We head to France to hear about one farmer's regenerative learning journey and discover how he's putting that learning into practice here in the UK. And finally, we're in Germany, where an innovative funding model is bringing farmland back into common ownership and securing it for generations to come. being silent. <laughs> Alice and Dominic Ellsworth manage 58 acres at Whistlebear Farm, nestled between the Northumberland coast and the Cheviot Hills. They keep pedigree flocks of Angora goats for their fine mohair fleece and Wensleydale sheep for their high luster long wool. Their aim is to produce ethical, high quality knitting yarn. They know that this begins with the soil and the land, and they're always looking for ways to keep their farm as healthy as possible. Alice spoke with Annie Landless about some of their pioneering practices. <laughs> um, principally what we've done is we have gone over from the previous owners who were arable farmers to having grass lays, um, different herbal lays, very mixed swords. And we have seen a really fantastic change in organic matter. Uh, when we were first here, it was measuring between 2.8 and 3 point something. And more recently, last year, we measured again and we were between 5 and 7. So that's a really, really significant change. And you can see it around you. You, you can just see the way things grow and, and the colour and the life. It's, it's changed everything. We've been planting trees for the last year or so. Um, we've had a, a big project in conjunction with the Woodland Trust. Sorry, it's gone out of my head. We've, we've planted trees across the whole farm and we've divided all the fields into long strips. The, the trees are planted in three rows and the, the outermost rows are for coppicing um, which will give us plenty of browse for the goats yeah. and leaf hay for the goats through the winter um, because goats are naturally browsers as opposed to grazers and then the centre trees will be allowed to grow much bigger and be more specimen trees. The other thing it's done though it's divided the farm into these strips which opens up very easy in theory mob grazing for us um, and that's something we're really interested in and want to have in place across the whole farm 
we've started for the first time this year and we've had some success uh the the in some of the fields the the rows of trees are fenced um but they're open at the ends and we find that some of our stock are really good at respecting electric fences and some of them are really not it it has definitely worked this year we have seen an impact on the growth in the fields etc but hopefully next year it will be better in the 16 years we've been here, there have been massive changes in soil's health. Um, we have very little standing water on the farm now. It's, it's, when, it, when it rains here, our, our water soaks in really quite well. And that's essential because the livestock that we have get very, very sore feet very easily. So if, if it's wet, they don't go outside. So they cost so much more to feed, etc, etc. And it's more biodiversity and it's more shelter and that will bring in more um, wildlife and more species and everything works together. So the, the, the more variety and variation we can have above the ground and below the ground, it's going to be a good thing. Um, and that's a lot of what it's about. It's only a small farm. It's only 58 acres. Um, so unless we were a market garden or intensive pigs or something, we need to do something a bit different. We need to produce a product that's going all the way to the end consumer. Um, and yarn is great, actually. It doesn't have a sell-by date, which is a wonderful thing. And it's a really, really growing industry. That It's, it's the fastest growing craft in the Western world at the moment. And it's what's really lovely is that the people who come here to buy wool, they really want to know. They want to know the story. They want to meet the animals. They want to know what we're doing about regenerative farming. Even in 2013, I first started selling wool. And at that time, specialist yarn like ours, or boutique yarn as it's called, was mostly sold through wool festivals. And you would go to a big festival and you would set up a stand and they would be buying their year's supply of wool. And then they would be interested in your story, but they were mostly interested in your wool. Um, in the last few years, that has definitely changed. My, my best customers are now the ones that come to the studio and they want to know everything about the way that we farm because that adds to their enjoyment of the whole knitting process and the garment they 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 want to knit without guilt and why not you know and the way they can do that is actually seeing for themselves so yes it's been over over the last eight years it, it's changed from being entirely product-led to now being completely story-based when we first started farming we were always focused on the environment we, we were originally organically certified we do believe in all of that but as the years have gone by it's become about soil. It's all about soil. If the soil is right, everything else follows, or, or that's what it feels like. Our most recent change, actually, is that we are trying to reduce our use of fossil fuels um, and compaction of the fields. So we're reducing the use of the tractor. So we have got two working horses, and we're starting to do more of our farming with the horses. This is the first year that they've been working and they've only been trained this year. So we have done some significant jobs. We've, we've done some hay tedding and we've um, sown some seed, moved things around, done some logging. But hopefully over the next few years, we will get that down to virtually all the farm jobs with the tractor just being a backup. We're not, we're not brave enough to get rid of the tractor yet.
the kit isn't that easy to get anymore because obviously, although it's surprising, actually, very, very pleasingly, more and more farms are genuinely going back to, to horsepower and they're not, they're not doing that for romantic ideals. They're doing it because it adds up. It is getting more and more difficult to farm conventionally on the back of fossil fuels. Andy Cato was a really successful DJ before he switched careers to become a farmer. He now farms a 100-hectare mixed farm in France with a bustling farm shop and an on-farm mill and bakery. But getting there has not been straightforward. Although he's always farmed organically, Andy realized a few years ago that the way he was farming just wasn't working. So he started grazing animals, growing heritage weeds, and using horses on the land, as well as developing some pasture cropping methods. Essentially, planting and growing crops as part of a pasture. Um, it's a really exciting way of growing crops, and as you'll hear from Andy, it has lots of benefits. All my professional life until about 15 years ago, maybe a little bit more, I was a musician. And so this whole adventure started when I was on the way back from a gig one day and picked up an article about industrial food production. And I was a kind of occasional organic food eating person at the time without really knowing why. And I read this article, very shocked by what I read, started doing more and more reading on the subject. And that led to me wanting to be self-sufficient. So I started growing vegetables for the family and went through a kind of transformational moment when I went down to the greenhouse one day. I built myself this little greenhouse and planted some uh, tomatoes and lettuces. And then when these seeds actually germinated and had two leaves, that was a miraculous moment for me. And why that isn't the first thing that happens when we go to school, I have no idea. And uh, when that became food on my, uh, or on our family table a few weeks later, that was just absolutely transformational. And, um, And from that moment really began a sort of long, uh, love affair, which has since led me to uh, uh, depths of despair and and uh, and peaks of euphoria along the road. But basically, to, I decided that for the rest of my life I want to be involved in in growing things. And um, I took the kind of absolutely insane decision to sell all of my song publishing rights to uh, to finance the purchase of a farm in in Gascony because I thought I had the bit between my teeth. I've been selling some vegetables at the local market. I was like, yeah, I want to do this at scale. I want to show we can do this at scale. And then when I, when I finally found this farm, finding farmland in France, I mean, there are upsides. It's a lot cheaper than it is in the UK, which is why I did it there. Uh, the downsides are it's heavily regulated, so you have to do these insane kind of interviews in local town halls to say, why well, it should be you that gets the field, not the other guy. And that's quite intimidating, you know, when all the sort of white dusty citrons come into the town town centre and everyone knows each other apart from me, you know, and some of the things that I said in those presentations make me wince. But anyway, you live and you learn. But so I got the farm and then it was just terrible, really, because the guy who, who sold it to me, he just family had farmed that farm for many, many generations. They built everything. I mean, just that incredible generation of people who'd felled the trees, made the beams, built the hangar, done the irrigation, built a lake, you know, I mean, just insane. But it was a tsunami wave of information, you know, like if you don't do that knob on the 1st of November, then that'll explode and this tractor and this and that and the other. And I knew nothing about mechanics, you know, and uh, realised that a lot of the job as it was passed over to me was about being a mechanic. 
and maintaining machinery and all of that. Yeah, I think it's because of that sort of fear and all this confusion, too much information, that I abandoned everything that I'd learned in the vegetable patch, which was from the moment I started no, no tilling or no digging and planted a large diversity of plants, everything was great. And before that, it was wild oats and dock leaves when I was using rotavators. And I, and I forgot that fundamental or just didn't have the courage to do that on 100 hectares. And so I went into a sort of non-plough but standard organic farming, the shallow tillage, and um, realised that well, the, the soil was at 0.5% organic matter, 80 years of maize. The average year, the average field in Gascony is bare for more than six months of the year. It's left bare all winter. I mean, it's all the kind of horror shows of modern industrial agriculture. And so the, the, the soil responded by throwing up wave after wave of... Um, of weeds, so thistles and dock leaves and the French equivalent of black grass uh, and these highly toxic weeds called datura, which are like sort of dinosaur era weeds that are, are so toxic that if you get one plant per 100 square meters, your soil is declassified. I mean, just horrendous. And about three, four years into this, I had to borrow this machine, which is, I don't know what it is called in English, but basically it's a load of blades and the idea is that they cut above the crop to stop the weeds that have gone high in the crop from seeding. I don't know what it's called in English, but I, I borrowed a sort of homemade version of one of those off a neighbour. And it was like five Flymo blades on a beam on an open-top tractor. So you have to put the whole biggles like scarf goggles and keep your mouth shut because there's debris going everywhere. And I was going through this field, it's like 35 degrees, debris flying everywhere. And I just realised the utter futility of what I was doing. And, um, and the fact that yeah, the guy next door who had his 30-metre sprayer out, was, he was just doing the same thing as me. I was basically at war, but mechanically rather than chemically. thought I'm going to have to give up because I was broke. And, and then there was a kind of like a semi-spiritual moment where totally by chance, whilst looking for an Enid Blyton book for my daughter, I found a misfiled book by Albert Howard called An Agricultural Testament on this Enid Blyton shelf, which is kind of too weird, really. And his whole thing was plants and animals need to be together. And so I said to my, you know, my poor wife, uh, before we give up, <clears throat> I want to try this herbivores and grass thing. And so uh, we got a herd of cows. I'd never had a dog or a cat when I was younger. So then the cows turned up. And then so we went to a phase of like red Sussex and, um, and herbal lays based on the Newman-Turner herbal lays from the, from the 1950s. And the effect on the, on, the, on the soil from the moment I started doing that was absolutely unbelievable quite hard to put your finger on it, but it's a sort of sense of life that, that came around in the, in the, in the grazed lay. So from that point, I was like, if we could just combine, yeah, annual crops in a perennial setting, that would be a great thing. Uh, and, um, and one of the big problems that I found right from the beginning, actually, coming into agriculture on the outside was that this is ridiculous, that um, we're trying to do like uh, new ways of growing things with varieties of plants that were built for a chemical system and, and a hopelessly uncompetitive, really hard. And one of the reasons why I ended up focusing on wheat uh, is because, um, you know, through a variety of, of circumstances, like there's a guy in France called Jean-Francois Berthelot, uh, his sort of English equivalent would be John Letts, I guess, like real sort of botanical obsessives almost who've like you know just like really drilled down into all these varieties and kept a lot of them alive and there's, in my case also I was lucky enough uh, to meet uh, an old guy who was a farmer baker who'd resisted the, 
the new wheats in the 50s and he gave me some of his grain and and I imagine the same applies to vegetables in all these worlds you know through 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 a combination of sort of dogmatic growers who've held held on and preserved things and some sort of specialists who've come in to try and retain things as well luckily we've got um, we've got a decent genetic bank, even if it's very, very depleted, to try and do some of that. So, so we really need these competitive varieties. So the reason why I sort of went towards wheat in the pasture cropping was because uh, these more competitive plants are around. And so my first attempts at pasture cropping were literally just to graze it down hard, put the wheat in there, and manage it all with grazing. So basically intervene with the cows two or three times during the growing cycle of the wheat to favour the wheat uh, compared to its, its, you know, the, the plants all around it, and knowing that, um, you know, these sort of more aggressive wheat varieties, they they go up so high and fast at the end that you can normally get above the grass. As the sort of grazing management thing got a bit more refined, um, we started to to get consistent enough results to be able to uh, to grow all of the wheat for our for our farm bakery in, in, in this way. And when it works, it's deeply satisfying because we were using a, uh, a very straightforward drill. We were pulling it with horses to avoid compaction, um, which is kind of quite bucolic. It's also very handy to avoid compaction because you were saying, I'm never going to, uh, you know, um, work my soil again. Uh, and it's basically just modelling clay and so very vulnerable to, um, to, to being squashed. Uh, it was a very, actually a very practical move, the horses thing. It wasn't just to be pretty, you know. It was, uh, and so, yeah, we're doing it like that. And the, the, the Achilles heel of that system is that you end up with the wheat that's above the grass. And uh, so long as it stays above the grass, that's fine. But if, if you get any kind of lodging, which is when the wheat gets knocked over, and you get the, the, uh, the, 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 the ears are in all this grass, it's horrific, you know. I'm trying to harvest it, or impossible. Now, in the context of our farm bakery, you can get around that because you just sow like 30% more and if you get it all then it's great and if you don't, you don't and, and that's fine. Andy was very clear that we can't expect everyone to build farm-to-table mixed farms. That would be a huge shift from the current status quo. Instead, he's drawn on what he's learned through his experiments to develop a system that plugs soil building methods into a conventional farming setup. He's created a very low-risk way for farmers to start farming more regeneratively. And he also realized that creating a route to market is key for the success of this. And so he set up Wild Farm Grains, which aims to be a regenerative wheat supply network in the UK. And he shared some of the details of this system with us. The Wild Farm thing was more like things are as they are. And so with things being as they are in terms of buying habits, logistics, the way society is organised, the way the infrastructure of society is organised, how can we do a thing which allows people to grow crops in a way which makes things better rather than worse? Um, and part of that was modifying the, the, the farming system to lower the risk as much as possible of failure. And part of that, and just as important in my opinion as what happens in the field, was working out a supply chain solution which meant that in the case of wheat our thing the three people involved in that the farmer the miller and the baker can all get paid correctly for their work and you can do all of that in a transparent way and still keep it affordable in the real world of food prices as they are the the farming part of that required de-risking 
this pasture cropping that I was doing because you just can't be in a situation where if the wind blows hard, it's all over. You know, you can't have that. And so the starting point for me was was that, and like, how can we keep the perennial thing? Because I was convinced of the need for of, of, or, or the how how perennials optimize things in lots of ways, allows you to work animals and and and, and arable together. And so how can we control that? And that's what led to this system, which we're now applying in the UK, where uh, the wheat is on very wide spacings. And we've got this um, slightly funky bright orange um, inter-row mower, which allows us to control the height of the perennial grass. So, we, we, so if we do get any lodging issues, you can still harvest it as you would in a, in a sort of bare earth field. You know, there is some tillage. And so basically when we set up the, um, the wheat rows, um, that's a, that's a tillage operation which allows those wheat rows to be uh, established, and on those rows will sow wheat, will also sow um, dwarf white clover. From that moment on, um, that that remains set. And so, one of the it's funny for someone who's been farming with horses. Actually, what's been great coming over here and working with the contractors here, who are, uh, the contractor here was amazing and like just all over the latest stuff, which is you know was was pretty foreign to me, but. Um, again, in this spirit of like, let's use what we've got today now to solve these problems. We've been working a lot uh, with the GPS guys to really make the most of this because once you've established those those strips, what we want to make sure is that two thirds of the field, which remains undisturbed perennial grasses, is undisturbed. And so, if we can get the GPS working to within two centimeters, which we spent about a month trying to work out in August, which we can now all the time, allowing for satellite drift. And so next year it's the same and the year after it's the same, which is which required a whole lot of coding from someone a lot cleverer than me. But if you can do that, uh, that, that op- just optimizes the fact that you're never going to touch your, your perennial ecosystem, which is, which is great, you know. So between, between the sort of precision of it uh, and, the, and the, simplicity, the simplicity of like, let's just build a mower, which allows us to keep the, the grass between the wheat down, which is ultimately the system is very, very simple, but to, to apply it requires a bit of precision. It's a little bit case by case. So the farm where we are now um, has, um, has been in grass for, for a very long time. Uh, now the grass has lost a lot of its diversity. So there's a lot of, some people seem to call it couch, some people call it cooch grass, but whichever way you call it, it's not great. But um, so there's a lot of that around and there's not a lot of diversity around. So, but equally, it would be a real shame to, plough all this up or even just do a surface cultivation of all this grass with all the release of CO2 that are gone with that and, and establish, you know, a, a brand new, like, you know, white clover cover or herbal lake clover, uh, herbal lake cover everywhere. Uh, year one, uh, we've gone over with, um, with the drill that's, again, it's something that's been made in France and is now going to live here, but which basically creates um, about 20 centimetre strips into which we sow two rows of wheat and some white clover, and that's been done. And then uh, we'll mow between those strips um, when necessary to favour the wheat. Uh, and a lot of that job in, in, uh, in, in a farm in France is done with, with livestock, and that's the plan here. We just need to get the fences made, and, and, um, and then when the weather permits, you can just graze the whole lot, strips and wheat included, which is, which is great, and that's where we're heading. But <clears throat> where you can't do that, then the mower can come in and save the day. Uh, and then that will go on until harvest and, and new things that have been added to the system include things like sap analysis and foliar sprays of seaweed and, 
and compost tea, which I've been using in France for a while, and just try to try and optimise the potential of the plants. And then after harvest, in an ideal situation, you would hit all of the, the, the grass and straw residues as hard as you can with as big a herd as you can. The second time around, sow the wheat again back into the strips where the clover is now established. Uh, but that's a much lighter and quicker and easier operation because everything's been, been set up. And um, depending on what you want to do, whether you want to do a, a break crop or just do continuous wheat, you just carry on like that. And that's it. And that's what allows us to, uh, to have two-thirds of the field as a perennial ecosystem um, with, with security as much as there ever is in farming around, <laughs> around the wheat. Just sort of putting all the details aside for one moment. Um, it's kind of interesting for me because I, I, I did something very, very different for a very long time. And, and in the sort of rules of the game, as often described on social media and on advertising, I was sort of DJing at the parties and in the houses and on the yachts of the people who, in quotes, won. Uh, and they'd, they'd won the game as we define it. Uh, and it's kind of very interesting to, to come back from that, sort of back down to earth, as it were, no pun intended. Um, actually, there was a pun intended. Um, but um, and to to uh, just to go into this this whole new world, and it um, and it brings a lot of things home about our notions of time and patience and lifespan. And you go from like you know microseconds of a Google search to experiments which take a year to find out what that might be in those weather conditions. And in five years, you might know if that's actually actually going to. I mean, it's a whole different mentality, and um, and and just to sort of work alongside people who have got nothing really. I mean, a lot of the farming where I am is quite poor, you know, and so they're very sort of cash poor. And it, and a lot of them are going through very, very difficult times, but most of them it wouldn't change it either. You know, and, and there's a sort of richness of, of um of experience in this world which I've been lucky enough to have a second life in, which um which gives you a kind of whole new whole new sense of like what happiness is all about and, and what life's all about. And so uh there's a good quote from from um from the actual Cato about how how agriculture is the the only choice for noble men or something. Obviously it was men back then. You have to adapt that last word to suit the times. We first met Thomas Ripple several years ago at We Feed the Planet, which was a meeting organised by the Slow Food Youth Network in Milan. We just started Farmerama. Thomas trained as a biodynamic farmer in Switzerland and hoped to buy his own farm. But he quickly realised the prospects of ever managing to do that were slim. Instead, he joined a community farm in Germany just as the farm's landowners had decided to sell up. Faced with the prospect of losing the farm, Thomas set up a crowdfunding campaign. And by selling community shares, he managed to raise nearly a million euros. With the farm secured, he realised this was a model that could help bring other farms into collective ownership. It's a cooperative where people can pool their money together to enable the purchase of, of land. The, the Kulturland Cooperative has today bought land with 22 farms and we're growing very quickly. 
we have secured uh, more than 300 hectares of land and raised something like 4 million euros of community capital. We basically developed our own software. It's a platform where each farm has its own site where people can then participate in, in this crowd investing. 80 to 85 percent are directly connected to the farm. So they, they are either members of that CSA farm or they are customers of the farm. So they want to see their farm secured financially and, and the land secured. And then there's 15 to 20 percent of people who just think that overall this is a wonderful idea. And those 15 to 20 percent are usually people who have larger amounts of money. So about half of our money is coming from those 15 to 20 percent and half of the money is coming from people who uh, want to support their farm. We don't offer any financial returns because, I mean, who's going to pay for that? The farmer. And how is the farmer going to pay for that? Well, he's going to charge more money for the produce. And who's going to pay for that? Uh, the, the customers. And who's giving us the money? Well, the customers. So, so why should we pay them returns? You know, in the end, they have to pay their own returns. So uh, we, we're not offering any dividends. And the shares, they, they don't rise in value. They stay at nominal value. But, I mean, for the past 10 years, you're not getting any interest uh, at, at the bank as well either. And, and we're moving into negative interest uh, territory. So rather than having your money on a bank account, you might as well make that available for something good. I, I do think that um, there's some people who think, well, you know, in the end, the most secure thing is land, right? So I might as well, you know, put my money into land. They're not putting it directly into land. They're rather, you know, they're putting it into the cooperative, which then buys land. But in the end, yeah, we, you know, we do have all this land, which if a crash comes or hyperinflation comes or whatever, then, you know, we, we are still going to exist. We're still going to be uh, there and land is always going to be needed and food is always going to be produced. I think a lot of the value is just in knowing that you're securing this land and then you're taking it out of private property, securing it as a commons and, and making it available for a kind of agriculture that really is in harmony with nature that is promoting biodiversity that is building up soil fertility and and is hopefully also treating the people that are involved better than conventional farming you know so it's it's really about mostly about the, the community aspect and making sure that this land is secured for generations to come we consider ourselves a commons in the sense that we basically created a legal framework where the land is not actually owned by the cooperative itself, but we create these kind of subsidiary entities where the farmers who are actively farming the land are stakeholders in that entity. So the cooperative collects the money from the community, basically. And then we put that money into that subsidiary legal entity where the farmer is involved as the fully liable entity. And the party that is putting the money in, the cooperative, has actually very few rights. We can't really tell the farmer anything. He has a perpetual lease agreement that can't be cancelled. So the only difference, I would say, to owning the land outright is that they can't sell the land. Right? So they, they can farm the land, they can do with the land uh, what they want as long as they're doing organic agriculture and we have a several few other criteria like 
10% of the land has to be put aside for natural conservation area. And the farm has to be socially active. Uh, and, and we have listed several criteria. So either the farm is doing direct marketing or it's a CSA or the farm has apprentices or is working with disabled people or has school children working on farm and so on. So it has to have a social aspect as well. So as long as the farms uh, stick to those criteria, they can cultivate the land in perpetuity. So legally speaking, the, the farmer is basically the owner of the land, but he can't sell it. It has to be a mutual agreement of both entities, the, the cooperative and the farmer. So basically the land can never be sold. And uh, this turned out to be a really wonderful solution because we as a cooperative, we can sell the land on the market as well. You know, if we would be the outright owners, let's say 30 years down the line, 50 years down the line, you know, it's a whole different set of members. And then they think, well, oh, this, this land is worth a lot of money. Let's sell this land. Well, we have set it up in a way that the land, if it were to ever have to be sold, then the farmers who are actively farming the land have a right of first refusal for the original purchasing price. Right, so whatever price we paid back then is basically the maximum we're ever going to get. So there's no incentive to ever sell the land for profit because there is never going to be any profit. Yeah, so that's our model. It's a participative uh, model. It only works if, if people think that you know this model is something worthwhile and they want to buy shares in the cooperative and then we have the money available to, to fund these land purchases. We've, in the past couple of years, developed a model which enables succession outside the family, basically. In the culture land succession model, the farmer says how much they need to buy a house somewhere off the farm, and how much they need per month as living expenses, and culture land commits to this payment. These costs combined don't come close to the value of the land, so the farmer's essentially making a donation to the co-op in order to ensure the farm stays ecological. They're able to leave the farm comfortably with a new house and essentially a pension. Thomas talked us through an example of one farmer they worked with recently. Two years ago, we started talking with a, a farmer. This, this farm has belonged to this family for more than 400 years. He farmed the land for, for 30 years. He has two children. They both don't want to take over the farm. Yeah, so he said he really wants the farm to keep existing as a farm, right? He doesn't want to sell it on the market for, for market value, but rather hand it over to an organization that is going to make sure that the farm exists as, as an entity. And he said he needs, I think it was something like 400,000 euros so he can leave the farm, so he can also pay his children a little bit of money and he needed uh, 2,300 euros per month. So if you calculate the, the total value of that, 2,300 euros times 12 times the number of years that he's probably going to live, plus minus, then that has a value of about, depending on how you calculate that, between half a million and 700,000 euros. So in total, what he was asking for basically was around about a million euros. And the value of the land was more than that, quite, quite a lot more than that. Uh, I think in total, it was worth at least two and a half million. So basically, he was donating a million and a half euros. 
what we did was we got that uh, 60 hectares of land plus the buildings worth two and a half million euros and then we guaranteed him that monthly stipend and we paid him the, the 400,000 euros and now we're looking for young people to take over the farm and they don't have to worry about any of that you know they don't have to worry about the 400,000 euros or the the 2,300 euros a month what we're asking them is uh, to pay we don't call it a lease because that associates a different kind of relationship. So we're not the landlords and they're the leasees, right? But rather we, we are a community and the organization itself also needs some money to, to fund its expenses. So our partnering farms, they pay basically a contribution. Each, each farm gets a suggested amount, which is not f- fixed, but rather it's, it's really a suggestion. And then the farm can say that they, can, they, they want to pay more or less than that. Right? And this is basically the money that we need to make sure that uh, the cooperative as an entity can cover its expenses and, and to, to maintain the organization so that the land is secured. So we got a lot of applications the past three months from, from young people, families or communities who want to take over the farm. And we are just now in the final stages. In the next couple of weeks, we will make the final agreements with the two couples who will be taking over this farm. And uh, we now have several farms that we are in the process of taking over and then looking for young people to, uh, to farm. I think the way we've worked it out now, it's very much scalable without uh, running the danger that, you know, that it's going to get structurally corrupted. Uh, I think we put in a lot of safeguards there. Um, I, I really do think that this can be a model that can be a solution for thousands of farms in Germany, but also outside of Germany. And I'm very happy to share our know-how. I think it can be pretty much copy pasted and also the, the infrastructure that we created in terms of the IT. We have worked very, very hard to keep developing that. It's uh, still in prototype phase, but by the middle of next year, we, we should have a 2.0 version of the software ready where other users can use it. Uh, so individual farms could use uh, the software just to run their own little crowd investing campaign. We, we, we're not going to charge, you know, the classical fee model of uh, whatever, 5 7% or so on. We want this to be a, a commons-based tool. You know, we're going to say, well, we think maybe we need about 3% or something like that uh, to cover our costs. But then it's up to you to decide if you can pay more or less than that. This episode of Farmerama was produced by Katie Revel, Joe Barrett, and me, Abby Rose. Thanks to Annie Landless for the recording from Whistlebear Farm. Our Patreon supporters help make Farmerama possible. We're very grateful to them, and even the smallest contribution makes a big difference to us. If you'd like to become a supporter, visit patreon.com forward slash Farmerama. Community support for Farmerama is provided by Olivia Oldham, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Hannah Söderland. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. Toodaloo!